Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi. I'm a GP and the medical editor of HealthEd. Welcome to our unique podcast series now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. Thank you very much for the kind introduction and it's very much a pleasure to have the opportunity to uh, make this presentation. Uh, my name's Henry Wu and although I'm a urologist, um, I'm a little bit different to the average urologist in that uh, I'm uh, completely subspecialised in just treating prostate disease. Uh, these are my relevant disclosures and I'll just dwell on this slide for a few moments. Now, the learning objectives for this presentation are essentially to empower GPs to be in a position to um, support their patients um, who have uh, undergone uh, treatment for prostate cancer. Now, this presentation has been split up into two parts, with the first part being to do with uh, the post-radical prostatectomy care, and the second part is to deal with the more advanced stage of the disease when men are going to be on androgen deprivation therapy. Now let's start with radical prostatectomy. Uh, as you all know, it's uh, principally performed as either an open or robotically assisted procedure. Uh, people often ask, is there any difference between the two? Well, there's only been one randomised controlled trial comparing open versus robotic surgery, and it's a very high impact study because it's a difficult one to do now, given that uh, you could argue that the horse is bolted and uh, uh, patients uh, actively seek out the robotic approach. Now, the key thing from this uh, randomised controlled trial is that there were no differences in the oncological outcomes, nor were there any differences in the functional outcomes. However, there were some some, a number of things which definitely favoured robotic surgery. Now, it's no real surprise that these patients had less pain, particularly in the early phases after the surgery, and there were fewer intraoperative complications, there was less blood loss, and there was a better physical quality of life score, and there was less distress, and also a shorter operative time. And uh, unfortunately, we see that uh, I think robotic surgery is oversold for what it is, but that doesn't mean that there is, no, just because there is no difference in the oncological and functional outcomes, that doesn't mean that uh, we shouldn't be considering uh, the robotic approach. Now, the sorts of things that men worry about after they've undergone their surgery are, the, of course, the early post-surgery recovery pathway and the results of the final pathology, the recovery of the urinary function and the recovery of sexual function. And I'm going to walk you through uh, these uh, sorts of concerns that patients will uh, often uh, uh, talk to me about in their uh, post-surgical uh, uh, period. Now, there's some variation, obviously, between surgeon to surgeon, but uh, most of my patients are discharged, believe it or not, uh, day one or day two after the surgery. I'm very much of the belief that once a patient gets to a stage where what they're doing in hospital that they could do at home, they're much better off being at home. The urethral catheter is typically removed a week later in the office environment, and in the intervening time, the catheter is attached to a leg bag, and I consider the night bag attachment to be optional. Some men find it a bit of a nuisance because it drags on them and it's just easier with the leg bag alone. Um, I encourage walking and I have no concerns at all of these men, uh, even at say day four or five, it's not uncommon uh, for them to be in a position where they can you know, go outside and walk down to the local shops and even have a cup, cup of coffee in their local cafe. Uh, 
Um, so after the catheter is uh, removed, uh, the patients obviously feel better for that. And I find that the vast majority of men are able to resume driving their car by 10 to 14 days. So that gives you a sense of just how quickly men do recover from this type of surgery. Um, the return to work can vary and obviously a lot of that's going to do with the nature of the work that uh, they are engaged in. And uh, if they're doing work which uh, involves sitting on their backside for most of the day, and particularly if it means that they can work from home, uh, you find that uh, some men are actually back at work even before their catheter comes out. Not that I encourage that, but uh, uh, I generally uh, advise men to take four to six weeks off to give them a safe buffer uh, from uh, uh, the pressure of uh, having to return to work. Now, when it comes to the early post-surgery complications, once they've gone home, um, now this is not an exhaustive list, but these are some of the things that I, th I feel uh, there should be some awareness about. Um, for example, the wound issues are more likely to crop up in that first uh, week after surgery. And there might be a bit of bruising and hematoma and patients just need a bit of reassurance. Sometimes we need the hematoma where a lump comes up um, and provided it's not expanding, I think, think that the best thing to do is just to manage it conservatively and as surely as night follows day, it generally settles down. But also give, you the patient, give your patients the head up, heads up that they may see some bruising um, that will follow. Uh, it's not always apparent immediately. Um, patients can be very unlucky to get an infection in the wound and you know these days with the short stay in hospital it's almost like they don't have enough time to get an infection. Um, now a very rare but uh, significant complication is an acute port site hernia. So even though little ports that we you know the port sites are very small incisions it's, it's amazing how in the, that uh, very rarely a, a loop of bowel can wiggle its way through there and cause uh, obvious problems. Now, when it comes to uh, issues with the abdomen and pelvis, uh, constipation, that's common to any major type of operation. And uh, um, if uh, patients are struggling, I think it's, uh, um, it's obvious that we should uh, uh, offer what assistance we can, whether it means uh, going through the top end or from the bottom end. Now, if a patient develops acute pain, um, then what you need to do is just sort of process in your mind what, uh, what could be happening and things which are particular about uh, uh, having had a radical prostatectomy are going to be if there's a bowel obstruction uh, where a loop of bowel has managed to find its way into the wrong place or is there some type of collection like is it an abscess in, uh, or is it a lymphocele and lymphocele are particularly um, uh, something to consider if there has been a formal pelvic lymph node dissection uh, there may be a hematoma, there may be a late, uh, uh, a blood vessel may have popped and there's a late bleed, uh, which usually ends up being contained. Or is there an anastomotic leak where there's a so-called urinoma? So these are things to consider and obviously uh, these patients are best to uh, return to the hospital to have an urgent scan. And then of course the general comp types of complications and in particular um, uh, DVT and pulmonary emboli. Uh, fortunately, uh, they tend to be quite uncommon these days, even though this is pelvic surgery uh, for cancer. Um, it's due to the fact that uh, at the time of surgery, men are actually in the, um, in the steep Trendelenburg position, which is favourable for venous drainage. And also, we tend to get the patients up and walking around very early. And so we make them work hard and, uh, um, and, and therefore there's very little time um, or opportunity for venous stasis. Now, of course, the results of the final pathology uh, worry all of these men. And uh, 
The pathology reports are often a little confusing uh, for the lay person. Um, but at the end of the day, most of these men only want to know if the cancer has been successfully removed or not. Now, the best outcome we can hope for is where a patient has a favourable grade disease, uh, where it is completely contained within the prostate and the surgical margins are negative or clear. But the thing we have to bear in mind is that a clear surgical margin does not mean the absence of residual cancer because uh, patients do need to prepare themselves for the possibility that uh, micrometastatic spread may have occurred at some time prior to the local treatment and these cells which might be lying anywhere in lymph nodes or bone at a microscopic, undetectable microscopic level may not declare themselves until um, so, you know, some time in the future. Obviously, if they've got lymph node metastases, that is indicative that there has been spread, and that is very much a red flag that, well, if it can spread to the lymph nodes, it has possibly uh, spread elsewhere in a microscopic fashion. Now, this is just an example of uh, a typical um, uh, histopathology result after a radical prostatectomy, and there's been a very um, strong move towards what we call synoptic reporting. And this is where it gives you a checklist of all the things that uh, we're very interested in. And I'll just show you an example here. Now, one of the key things we look at is, the, is how aggressive that cancer is under the microscope. And uh, you can see in the bold type, we talk about the grade group. And the grade group is, uh, um, is the uh, main way in which we articulate how aggressive it is and um, we're tending to use that more so than the Gleason scoring. So a grade group five in this particular case is equivalent to a Gleason score four plus five adenocarcinoma. Other things we look at in particular, and again, you know, we'll focus on the bold type things. Um, of course, the, the uh, light type things are things which uh, uh, inf may influence uh, specialist uh, um, modifications to uh, the management or follow-up. But the bold type things like, is there evidence that this cancer has broken through the outer coverings of the prostate and gone into the surrounding tissue? And that's what we call extra prostatic extension. Now, having extra prostatic extension doesn't mean these patients are beyond cure because the key thing we're hoping to achieve is a negative surgical margin as uh, listed on this uh, uh, report. Um, now, other things which are uh, important are whether there is seminal vesicle involvement and in this particular case, yes, there was, and in association with the high-grade disease, and also the lymph nodes were positive as well. So the, this man, even though we had a so-called surgical clearance, there's certainly going to be a bit of a red flag on this individual, and he's going to need close monitoring, and it probably would be uh, um, a little bit uh, uh, less than accurate to tell this man that he has definitely been cured. Um, we can, all we can say is that uh, we've got the best possible outcome we could hope for following the surgery and now it's a case of uh, um, uh, monitoring him uh, regularly and closely and emphasising the importance of follow-up. Now when it comes to PSA testing after a radical prostatectomy, uh, I usually get the first PSA at three months after the surgery. And this is one of the uh, occasions where I think it's, it's okay to have blissful ignorance about what the PSA is doing but you've got to remember that the PSA takes some time to decay out of the system. Now, the ideal level we're hoping for is an undetectable PSA of less than 0.01. Patients often say, oh, why isn't it zero? Um, because to be scientifically correct, um, if you say zero, it, it means that every, if there's a, um, 
infinite number of zeros behind the decimal point that it is, uh, uh, that it is accurate too. And we know that uh, no test has that level of accuracy. Make sure you use the same laboratory because uh, there can be variations uh, between the labs and some labs uh, um, are more dedicated towards uh, um, uh, providing a uh, uh, PSA service than others. Now initially the PSA will be on a three monthly interval, but once again, depending on uh, the circumstances, uh, many of these patients will ultimately move to a six monthly uh, frequency of PSA testing, and that should be indefinitely once you get to that stage. All right, now let's talk about um, uh, the recovery of urinary function. Now pelvic floor exercises should actually commence prior to the surgery, so they should be referred to see not just any, any physiotherapist, but a, a, cons, uh, a physiotherapist who actually has a subspecialty interest in that area. Age is an important risk factor for recovery. Um, and uh, it's important to recognise that uh, and to be, um, I guess, uh, fairly frank to the men that the vast majority of men are going to have incontinence initially after the surgery. Now, the way I frame it to patients is I talk to them about what is a typical type of recovery? And I tell them that a typical recovery is around six months before they can come, become pad free. However, I always, and I also frame it that they should prepare themselves for a, uh, a less, uh, um, less good outcome in that it may take a little longer. It could take even up to 12 months. And also to prepare themselves that it may not get better at all. So there is a percentage of men that where they will have permanent incontinence. And, uh, but the thing about the permanent incontinence, the, de it's, uh, deg the degree of bother that determines if anything further needs to be done. At the same time as being prepared for a worse outcome, they can hope for a quicker recovery. And certainly we see as many as 20% of men who from the moment their catheter removes, they don't leak a single drop of urine. And uh, um, it's not always possible to accurately predict uh, uh, who's going to behave like that. And sometimes uh, when you look at the performance, uh, I guess, uh, spectrum of the patient, uh, as well as their overall health and how the operation works, there's sometimes no justice in why one man does better than another. And during the process of uh, recovery, it's, uh, um, men are often uh, unsure as to whether they're making progress. And a good thing to do is encourage them to do 24-hour padway testing. It's uh, quite logical that uh, you use the kitchen scales and that you subtract uh, the weight of a dry uh, pad off the uh, weight of the pad uh, that they've removed and that gives you the number of grams that they've lost. Now when it comes to recovery of sexual function, um, again, um, it's important that we set expectations appropriately. And uh, uh, it's important also to remember that the recovery of erectile function is going to depend on a number of factors, in particular age, whether you can do a nerve sparing operation or not, which is uh, guided by uh, cancer factors. And also there is um, the importance of surgeon expertise. Now with the recovery of erectile function, again, uh, setting expectations is so important. We've got to consider, the con consider this in the context of a very high prevalence of erectile uh, dysfunction um, in the same aged men who haven't got prostate cancer. So to give you an idea, something like 60% of men aged in their 60s have some degree of erectile dysfunction, which can range from um, nuisance through to profound. And when you get to your 70s, it's like 70%. And you could argue that if all men live long enough, it is our destiny that we're going to lose that function. 
Another thing to uh, set expectations uh, appropriately is that the recovery of erectile function could take as long as two to three years. So if they're still not seeing an erectile, any erectile function at six months, um, it's, uh, there's no panic stations at that point in time. Uh, the use of PDE5 inhibitors like uh, Tadalafil and Sildenafil are very important in this uh, recovery process. They can be used as continuous or intermittent on-demand dosing. Uh, most commonly, we tend to use the daily Tadalafil. Um, and it's not uncommon to also use either additional Tadalafil or even Sildenafil uh, as kind of booster doses for special occasions. Now, the other aspects of uh, sexual function recovery is that orgasmic function actually remains intact. And a lot of men are uh, pleasantly surprised that they can have a pleasurable orgasm in spite of having a flaccid penis. Now, something which doesn't tend to get talked about much is that it's not uncommon to see climacturia. So they see with the orgasm, they see some urinary leakage. It often improves uh, over time with improvement of pelvic floor function. Now, penile atrophy is also important um, and often under-recognised. And this is where penile rehabilitation with the use of a vacuum constriction device is uh, strongly recommended, particularly in the first six months. Uh, Self-injection therapy using a vasoactive agent is an alternative, but compliance tends to be poor for obvious reasons. Uh, once atrophy is established, uh, it can't be reversed, so there's a very strong uh, imperative to, uh, uh, to uh, undertake that program. Now let's move on to the second part, which is in regard to androgen deprivation therapy. It's a more uh, accurate terminology than hormone therapy. And the key indications are short-term administration in conjunction with radiotherapy or a longer-term administration for advanced prostate cancer. And the principal approaches we use um, today are either bilateral orchidectomy, uh, a gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonist, or a gonadotropin-releasing hormone antagonist. Now, firstly, with the gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonist, what actually happens is that uh, uh, there's release of this from the hypothalamus, which then induces the release of LH and FSH from the pituitary gland. And LH then leads to testosterone production from Leydig cells in the testicle. And when you first start these, uh, anal uh, these uh, gonadotropin-releasing hormone analogues, it initially leads to a surge in uh, LH production. So it's almost counterintuitive that this is the type of drug we give, um, but what actually happens is that when you bombard the uh, pituitary with this, it leads to a down-regulation receptors and then production is shut down and you end up um, having castrate levels of testosterone as the endpoint. Um, when we do start this, uh, it's important to consider the testosterone surge because that can have serious implications if somebody has got a critical bone lesion or impending urinary tract obstruction. So it's quite usual to give uh, this type of drug with an antiandrogen such as uh, Cosidex or bicalutamide to cover the flare phenomenon. Commonly used uh, gonadotrophin-releasing analogues include uh, um, gozzarellin, luprolide, and tryptorellin. Now, when it comes to gonadotropin antagonists, there is only one available on the market, which is uh, Degarolix, uh, also known as Firmagon, and this is delivered as a subcutaneous injection. This uh, diagram here demonstrates the differences between uh, the mechanism action for uh, the two types of uh, uh, gonadotropin-releasing hormone uh, uh, preparations, 
And with the antagonist, it, uh, it's quite intuitive that it is actually blocking, directly blocking the release of LH and FSH from the pituitary. And it is a much more intuitive way in which uh, you expect uh, um, testosterone levels to be suppressed. The advantages of uh, using a, an antagonist is that there's no requirement for flare coverage. It's a rapid onset, rapid and almost immediate onset of action. And there is also reduced risk of cardiovascular morbidity and mortality, and particularly in those with uh, cardiovascular risk factors. Uh, the disadvantages are that uh, there's only a one month formulation available. And if there isn't uh, due care given, there can be um, uh, significant injection site discomfort. Um, bilateral orchidectomy confers the same benefits over the uh, gonadotropin um, releasing hormone uh, antagonist that should read. Uh, but uh, obviously uh, there are uh, a lot of men um, uh, find uh, having surgery to remove the testicles a, uh, um, a challenge to uh, accept. Now the principal adverse effects of uh, ADT are well uh, explained in this table here and we're going to walk you through all of these so uh, don't, uh, uh, don't uh, worry too much about uh, jotting down all of those uh, items there. Now let's first look at the sexual adverse effects of ADT. The great majority of men are going to have these. But it's interesting that in spite of that, not all men are going to have erectile dysfunction, even though the great majority. It's amazing how some men will still maintain that function. Um, the saving grace about erectile dysfunction is that uh, because that occurs in association with loss of libido, um, it removes a lot of the angst about that. Um, occasionally there is some benefit, benefit with, an intermittent, with an intermittent ADT protocol because with testosterone, testosterone recovery um, some function may recover temporarily. The mainstay of uh, erectile dysfunction treatment during this uh, process is, uh, is the PD-5 inhibitors such as Tadalafil and Sildenafil. Now when it comes to the physical adverse effects of ADT, um, this in particular refers to the muscle weakness and atrophy and changes in body weight and uh, fat uh, distribution and stamina. Well, it's emerged that exercise physiology uh, is an essential approach to mitigate against these uh, side effects. And there's a lot of uh, evidence in literature that exercise physiology, uh, which has been an emerging, uh, um, <coughs> emerging field, uh, can make all the difference. So uh, it strongly recommend that this be an essential part of their um, uh, management um, in dealing with side effects from uh, ADT. Now diet education is important uh, as, uh, and in some instances dietitian involvement may also assist with any issues with uh, weight gain. Gynecomastia can sometimes be an issue and if that is uh, particularly problematic, uh, a small number of men may uh, benefit from uh, breast irradiation or uh, surgical removal of uh, that breast tissue. When it comes to genital atrophy, uh, treatment is rarely sought, uh, but uh, a, a vacuum constriction device uh, may be of some uh, assistance. Um, whilst we can argue that uh, cosmetic surgery could be offered, um, I think that it is highly unlikely that uh, uh, many men would uh, opt for that. Now, when it comes to the metabolic adverse effects of ADT, uh, one of the important things to consider is bone mineral density lost, loss. And most of this occurs in the first year of uh, being on the ADT. And uh, 
Another thing to consider, there is often pre-existing um, loss of uh, bone mineral density loss, uh, particularly when the cancer is already metastatic to the bone. Uh, there is some theory that men who have uh, low bone mineral density perhaps uh, are creating an environment that is more conducive for metastatic disease uh, to take hold. Now, therefore, a baseline DEXA study is strongly recommended uh, at the commencement of ADT and again at 12 months. And these men should be routinely treated with vitamin D and calcium, uh, particularly when long-term ADT has been instituted. And obviously, if we find that there is uh, clinically significant uh, bone mineral density loss, these men should be considered for additional treatment. Hot flushes are incredibly common, and the measures that we undertake are not dissimilar to what uh, is offered for women at menopause. Um, the uh, antidepressant uh, agents uh, are often helpful, uh, but in uh, more extreme circumstances, uh, steroidal antiandrogens such as cyproterone acetate at low dose can be offered in severe, uh, very severe cases. Now with uh, metab other metabolic uh, adverse effects of ADT, in particular um, hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, lipid abnormalities, um, these are best mitigated against by having a baseline measure and also doing regular monitoring um, as you would for any other patient. And uh, by keeping an eye on this is the best way in which you can address these before they become an issue. Um, there is strong evidence that um, you can actually reduce the risk of cardiovascular-related uh, morbidity and mortality uh, with the use of uh, gonadotropin-releasing hormone antagonists or a bilateral orchidectomy. So particularly if you have men where uh, they have got uh, risk factors, this is something that should be uh, uh, strongly considered. Now, when it comes to the emotional cognitive, cognitive effects of ADT, um, uh, we do need to consider, the, consider uh, psychotherapy, uh, support groups and pharmacological therapy. Um, and there's also evidence that if we can improve their overall sense of well-being, um, say in particular through exercise physiology, that can also be beneficial. All right, now the take-home messages from this presentation is that um, understanding, I guess, the issues associated with uh, the uh, recovery period after a radical prostatectomy as well as the impact of ADT on men who need to go on that treatment, is going to empower GPs to uh, uh, be, uh, I guess, uh, optimise their support of their patients. And uh, that support is, is well within the scope of practice for general practitioners. And uh, um, I hope that this presentation has been of assistance. And once again, it's uh, been a great pleasure to uh, be able to uh, uh, make this lecture. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi, and on behalf of the team here at HealthEd, I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast. If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.